The Naval Institute Podcast is brought to you by Lockheed Martin. At Lockheed Martin, our mission is to keep you mission ready. And the F-35 Lightning II delivers. From the factory line to the front lines, we're there to see your mission through from start to finish, ensuring our men and women in uniform have a decisive advantage and come home safe every time. It's your mission that defines our purpose because lives depend on it. Lockheed Martin, your mission is ours. Welcome to the Naval Institute podcast. I'm Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings. Uh, it's great to uh, be here today. We've got a lot going on at the Naval Institute this week. We just wrapped up our uh, winter Board of Directors meeting. Always great to uh, hear the perspectives of uh, the, the impressive people who serve on the Board of Directors of the Naval Institute, including people like uh, Admiral Mike Rogers, former head of the National Security Administration, uh, and uh, Admiral Sandy Winnefeld, uh, you know, former vice chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. We've got business people. We've got uh, retired three and four star admirals on our board, generals. Uh, it's uh, it's an august group. And if you go inside a cover of proceedings, you can see on the masthead all the people that are on the board of directors and they serve in a purely voluntary basis. Uh, just uh, it, it's terrific to talk to them about content and about the business of the Naval Institute. Uh, in other news of what's happening here at the Naval Institute, we just launched... Uh, for the first time, a digital-only subscription to Naval History Magazine. And this is particularly pertinent to our uh, readers of Naval History who perhaps uh, don't want to pay for overseas shipping. If you if you live overseas and you like Naval History, uh, and paying that overseas shipping for a print magazine uh, is, is awfully expensive. We particularly designed this uh, for our overseas readers. Uh, we've got a lot of them uh, for Naval History. And if you're just a, a digital native and you like to see it on your phone or on your mobile device and, and you don't care so much about the print magazine, you can check out on our website, usni.org. Click on Naval History, click on Subscribe, and you'll see some new options there for a digital-only subscription to Naval History Magazine. Uh, a couple of things coming up in uh, Naval Institute news and also for the podcast. Next week, we will go to the uh, Naval Personnel Command in Arlington, Virginia, to uh, interview Vice Admiral John Nowell, the Chief of Naval Personnel. He wrote a proceedings uh, piece that we published online only in January about big changes that are coming in how the Navy manages its talent, uh, both officer and enlisted. Uh, should be a terrific conversation. And then we'll be going out to West, uh, to San Diego for two and three March, our big annual conference out there. And we've got some episodes of the podcast. Uh, we'll be uh, doing some episodes of the podcast from the booth uh, at the Naval Institute booth in the middle of the floor uh, at West. And we've uh, invited Ellen Lord, who is the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment. She is a keynote speaker at West, and she'll be talking to us in the podcast. We've also invited Admiral Phil Davidson, who is the commander of Indo-Pacific Command to be on the podcast. Uh, that's still an invite. Uh, we'll, we'll wait and see uh, if uh, if he can do it. We hear that uh, he, he wants to do it, and he's a uh, Naval Academy classmate of Ward. So I would think there's a good chance to get uh, both those uh, luminaries on the podcast. Should be great conversations about what's going on in PACOM and what's going on in the uh, uh, in the Pentagon from the Pentagon's essentially uh, uh, chief person with a big checkbook. So um 
Let's go to now to uh, our guest today. Joining us from the Midwest is uh, D.M. Jean Greco. He's the author of a new Naval Institute press book that is called Hell to Pay, Operation Downfall and the Invasion of Japan, 1945 to 1947. Uh, and, and D.M. Jean Greco, you go by Dennis. Uh, yep. great, great to have you on the podcast. Uh, how are things in your neck of the world? Well, not too bad weather-wise at the moment. <laughs> and you're calling us from, remind me again, Chicago, Indiana, where are you? Uh, well, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm in uh, the opposite end of the Kansas City area from Fort Leavenworth, where I was uh, working for uh, uh, 20 years at Military Review and then, several, uh, then came back several years later to work a few years at the Foreign Military Studies Office. Cool. Well, thanks for joining us from the Kansas City area. Um, so your book is, uh, you know, I found it fascinating. I dug into it yesterday and have been uh, crawling through it last night and, and today. Uh, and I so, understand crawling too. Yeah. Well, on that, on that book. <laughs> yeah. In 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 our emails before we, uh, you know, as we were setting up this conversation, you know, you mentioned that the book is a little bit like crawling on your knees through mud, and and I found it more interesting than that. But there, it's it's very dense on some incredible details and, you know, just the, the planning details that were going into the minds of, uh, the key planners, Navy and Navy Marine Corps, uh, Department of Defense, Army, as they were contemplating having to invade, uh, Japan, the home islands of Japan in, in 1945. So, um, why'd you write the book and tell us a little bit about what you learned as you went through the process of researching and, and writing the book? Well, uh, you know, I've been accused uh, by some of my colleagues as as giving it kind of the dense staff college uh, treatment, but but really it had to be done because there are just so many misconceptions uh, of uh, the true state of uh, the Japanese military at the time, uh, the, the realities of terrain, uh, the, oh, the fact that as we were drawing uh, closer and closer to Japan's, uh, moving cl more and more into Japan's core defensive areas, there was less opportunity for the kind of thing that, you know, became, you know, famous with the public later on, you know, the whole idea of bypassing, island hopping, and so forth. Uh, as we got deeper into the core, that option, uh, options along those lines became somewhat less uh, uh, able to be, uh, you know, carried out. And, uh, like uh, even even the invasion of Japan uh, itself on Kyushu, uh, it was uh, looked upon as uh, Kyushu by Admiral King. At one point, he said, "Well, you know, it's it's a it's a bigger island. We have um, you know have more options. We'll finally have more options for uh, maneuver and so forth, and like outflanking that kind of thing." But because of our very uh, formulistic way that we had to carry out uh, operations, the Japanese had, so to speak, figured us out. Uh, they had uh, correctly deduced uh, on Kyushu, for example, each one of the landing areas, uh, and uh, were they had already uh, very heavily fortified uh, the, the ones in the east. They did not 
heavily fortify yet the one in the west because they figured they did not need to because its uh, terrain was very much like, say, uh, Okinawa and Peleyu. Uh So uh, in terms of fixed defenses, they they were just mostly tunneling over there. But, uh, I mean, it, it was, it was a god awful mess. They'd essentially figured us out and, uh, had, uh, their dispositions, uh, arranged accordingly. Got it. Um, so you start off the book. It, it, this is just kind of a fascinating set of uh, of details here, particularly as, you know, it's, it's been so long since the United States has fought such a bloody war. Uh, so here at the start, um, a series of land invasions on the Japanese home islands that U.S. Army planners and senior leaders calculated would cost anywhere from 250,000 to 1 million American casualties, casualties just during the initial fighting. The United States had entered the war yeah, that's, late. That's Kyushu alone, interestingly enough. So the United States had entered the war late. It did not begin to experience casualties comparable to those of other belligerents until the conflict's final year. And by then, the U.S. Army alone was losing soldiers at a rate of 65,000 killed, wounded, and missing each and every month during the casualty surge of 1944 and 1945. Yeah, now the interesting thing about that, and this is this is these are figures so large that that people just can't really uh, they have very great difficulty uh, you know wrapping their minds around like the uh, the three peak months for example uh i think it was november december and january you're talking uh and again this is the army alone and it's you're talking 72,000 casualties 88,000 casualties 79,000 casualties, like say November, December, January, uh, from 44 to 45. Astounding numbers. Absolutely astounding numbers. And, and, uh, you, you, and, uh, and on the civilian side, moving into 1945, uh, on the civilian side, staggering numbers of deaths. Like, for example, in Okinawa, uh, depending on how you crunch the numbers and how you you want to you know work the estimates and f- say meld their uh, their uh, the forces the, their young male population that had been moved into the army, you know depending on how you want to do it, depending on how you crunch the numbers, Okinawa had forty two to one hundred thousand c- civilian deaths, uh, but people forget. Uh, Manila itself that year had just just a little bit over 100,000 killed in the fighting in Manila. Also preceding Okinawa, you had, uh, uh, let's see, it was a little bit under 100,000 casualties there, uh, plus uh, another 178,000, oh, I'm sorry, 100,000 deaths. These figures I'm giving you are for, uh, are for deaths, uh, 42 to 100,000 in Okinawa, 100,000 deaths Manila, 100,000 deaths Tokyo. There was continued fighting in China, which had been going on in, in just fantastically bloody spurts for uh, almost a decade at this point. So the, the amount of, uh, uh, the amount of, uh, of, uh, fighting and, and death in the, uh, Far East was really pretty much, uh, 
invisible after the war to a lot of people because there was uh, a lot of the uh, a lot of the interest tended to be eurocentric or uh, focused specifically on the US uh, army and marines and navy uh and uh, a lot of this was just pretty much invisible but the UN came up with uh about 400,000 uh deaths per month uh going on in uh, say the last uh, 6 months of the war it's astounding figures you know uh, absolutely astounding so our our listeners and our readers uh right now have have been looking at an uh, a, a compilation of content that we put together for the 75th anniversary of the Battle of Iwo Jima, which started this week in 1945 uh, and continued for about five or six weeks of very bloody fighting. Uh, and, and so we've put together a special landing page on our home site uh, with uh, naval history articles and proceedings articles and oral histories and photo archives and some of the Naval Institute press books. Uh, and, and you cover some, uh, a couple of, you know, key details from Iwo Jima, but that, you know, as you said earlier, as uh, as we got closer, as U.S. forces uh, got closer to the Japanese home islands, the options of doing, you know, the island hopping and uh, avoiding some of the, the the key terrain and just allowing it to be cut off uh, from logistics and and uh, obviating the need to uh, uh, to invade some of these places became less and less, you know, prominent, right? And so we had to and go... We, and that's not very well understood. Yeah, I mean, we, there, so, there are people... Yeah, that's not very well understood. So we had to take Okinawa. We had to take Iwo Jima. Uh, so tell us some of the lessons uh, from Iwo Jima and then Okinawa that impacted uh, the planning that was happening for uh, the the uh, home islands invasion. Well, it had uh, it, it had immense op- uh, implications for you know ongoing war planning. Uh, we ended up having or or Tr- Truman, the Joint Chiefs, uh, Service Secretaries uh, were were so alarmed by the uh, escalating uh, uh, casualties, and more importantly, that those casualties, uh, the ratio of Japanese casualties to U.S. casualties, uh, were was coming uh, was becoming closer and closer. Uh, as, as had uh, been noted by by some, by the time you got to uh, Iwo Jima, it was about one to one, and yeah, basically they had a meeting on June 18th. You know, uh, where Truman wanted to know if this is something that you know we should continue to do, and um, you know, everyone there, King, Marshall, and so forth, uh, they uh, they said. It's just, it is it is the price of this war, and this war has to be won. See, these are people who came of age, uh, not just World War One, but in uh, not just from World War One, but from the results of World War One and the uh, incomplete victory uh, there. You know, uh, uh, most people have some knowledge of uh, Versailles and how that ended up uh, turning out, and. Quite frankly, the way a lot of these people looked at it was, is if we don't do this right now, uh, we'll have uh, a, 
you know, yet another one of these, uh, say, in the next generation, uh, you know, something that would have made Vietnam look like a firecracker, you know, so to speak. Some, uh, you know, you you imagine a nuclear armed, uh, you know, if we don't get the war won, you one can imagine, say, a nuclear armed uh, Japan twenty years later or something revengeful and so on. So, in any event, that's getting off. Don't want to get off into fantasy time. But the idea was is they wanted to make sure that this war was won. Uh, blockade and bombardment, they could, uh, you know, at the, at the top, uh, no good answer could be, was able to be given as far as how long that would take. And, uh, yeah, King, Marshall, Arnold, uh, they basically uh, were all in line for we're going to have to carry this out. Uh, but at that June 18th meeting, w- we held uh, back on uh, authorizing the second invasion operation, which would be in the Tokyo Plain, and it was just limited to the first one, which uh, which was down in the southernmost home island of Kyushu, because uh, King said that one we do definitely have to do because we have to be able to extend our uh, air power into the uh, uh, Sea of Japan. We had a very effective blockade uh against uh china but we did not but the blockade was uh quite frankly almost non-existent in the uh in you know in terms of manchuko which was uh you know we think of uh, we think of manchuria now as part of japan and historically it was part of japan but at the time uh and this has led to you know uh some um misinterpretations of the of what people were looking at at the time you'll see plenty of uh, references to the effectiveness of the blockade uh you know you know cutting off uh, japan from china absolutely true magnificent job but at the time manchuko or manchuria was not part of that uh and the sea of japan was a whole different uh was a whole different uh you know uh, thing that had to be dealt with and king and marshall were both in agreement that to cut off north of uh korea uh that was going to have to be that was that kyushu the first initial uh, invasion uh the of kyushu was was an absolute necessity also, we were on the hook to um, um, this has not been discussed very much, in fact, hardly at all. But at Potsdam, we put ourselves on the hook to uh, running supplies up uh, through the I'm going to I think I might be mispronouncing this Tushima Straits between um, Japan and Korea after the northern straits uh, froze over. So that was another reason why we had to be uh, in, um, uh, you know, on the ground in Kyushu, is because we were uh, we were committed to supporting the Soviet, uh, you know, ground invasion in Manchuria, and uh, that, uh, you know, and we're not going to be able to put, uh, you know, supplies or you know through the north 
between Honshu and Hokkaido uh, w- once the uh, once that froze over. So we were going to be having to push them through that strait. So that's another reason why we had to take uh, the southern island. So at the very minimum, you know, we we were committed internationally and and uh, and strategically. So that, that's you know fascinating about the uh, the commitments from Potsdam and also the the naval aspects of this and and what the United States was uh, you know had signed up to do to to uh, assist the Soviet yeah, Union. Yeah, the, the military side of Potsdam is 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 regularly ignored by the diplomatic historians who write about uh, the conference. <laughs> Interesting. I mean, they don't they don't really get what that means when uh, you know <laughs> in some of these meetings uh, between uh, say uh, Marshall Marshall and King uh, with uh, uh, oh I'm kind of I'm afraid I may be uh, mispronouncing his name but Antonov uh, and uh, it's just uh, it's it's unfortunate you know certain certain voids. Uh, were created early on in the history, and that's led to uh, a lot of holes that uh, people have rushed into, and it's uh, it's uh, it's just it's just kind of a sad fact of of that particular of the Pacific War. Gotcha. So a lot has been talked about, you know, the greatest generation, and uh, you know, we we look with you know tremendous admiration back on those who fought World War II. Uh, you know the last real global war, uh, and the 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 sacrifices are are really are staggering. And as you point out in your book, the ones that not only happened in the lead up towards the the possible invasion of Japan, but also the ones that they were contemplating at that time. One of the things I, I haven't heard a lot about is the the war weariness, the weariness that came at the end of this, particularly in that 1944-45. We're three and a half years into the war. We've been losing, as we talked about. Earlier, 60, 70, 80,000 uh, just on the army side alone, casualties per month, which is, you know, per month, that's a Vietnam War, uh, even more than a Vietnam War amount of casualties, you know, per month. Uh, so talk a little bit about the war weariness that, that, that the leadership and, and the country was feeling at the time and how that was starting to impact uh, planning for this final stage of the war with Japan. Well, interestingly enough, there was not if you especially if you follow the newspapers of the period, there there was not actually a distinctly uh there was really not a distinct change in the backing of the war and war weariness had not been felt yet. But what King and Marshall were very uh concerned about is that once the European war was over, there would be this huge, This and then again, this is both men, that there would be this huge letdown that like, oh, uh, we've got, uh, we've, we've defeated the Nazis, the war is basically over, uh, you know, uh, Japan, well, you know, uh, you know they will, we won't, we won't even really think about that but a, a war uh half completed is uh is uh only a war half won so to speak and if people if the if the final crushing of the nazis leads to a situation where people say oh it's over it's you know then 
there could be more of an impetus for uh, the Japanese to perhaps uh, f- f- finagle themselves or work themselves into a situation where it would be, say, an armistice, armistice uh, might be uh, might end up coming about. And an armistice would be, again, that half-complete situation, that Versailles that would lead to uh, major, major powers having a major confrontation, say, in the next generation. So there was it. So it wasn't so much actual war weariness yet but that there would be a letdown. And I say king and marshal, but, you know, this was, uh, ev- really, everyone was on board with this. Uh, Stimson, uh, Truman, uh, it, it, was a, it was a real dangerous time from that standpoint. And so people had to be, you know, kept informed and motivated, and timelines had to be moving at a brisk pace. Because if there were, uh, if there was too much gap, too much of a gap in operations, that would also tend to uh, uh, reinforce uh, any any just uh, dispiritedness in in the uh, population back home. And although I should also mention that even though these casualties were uh, were happening. Uh, on the U.S. side, at a at a really frightening rate, uh, a lot of this was perceived more than known at the time. Uh, there was about a the, the way the, the way the system worked. There was really about a three month delay, and there was uh, in, in casualty reporting for the most part, uh, and that um, and there were certain manipulations being done in order to um, minimize. What was actually being uh, re- released? Certain categories were not being included in the in the, uh, in the overall tabulations that were being released. I, I wrote a lengthy paper on this at one point, and uh, that's also touched on in the book. So let's switch for a minute to the other side, to the uh, the enemy, the adversary, the Japanese side. So there have been, you know, some rumors and maybe revisionist history that the war was winding down and that the United States really didn't need to drop the two atomic uh, uh, weapons on Hiroshima and Nagasaki to to end the war. That the Japanese were sort of changing their minds and and they were getting war weary, and so there there was this perception, perhaps, that uh, you know the the U.S. went over the top. Uh, by dropping the two atomic weapons, uh, and, and your your research and your book reveals a, a different perspective on that. Well, Japanese were, <clears throat> while while war war weary uh, does not necessarily equate to abject surrender. Uh, you know that. Uh, you know, I'm sure your average Japanese, di- you know, civilian. Did not uh, did not want death, but it was uh, see. But they had a very different mindset. It was seen as a duty to you know to yeah. Every everything you've read on this in in terms of Bushido is basically true. In terms of the Japanese uh, leadership at that time, 
while there was it's sometimes called a peace, it was sometimes a, uh, referred to as a peace party it was not a peace party it was there was a there was a faction that was interested in um in getting a surrender not a surrender but an end to the war before uh there was an absolute collapse but uh this faction was really very much constrained by the fact that they knew that they would be uh killed if they uh went public uh the uh assassination and there are people you know who write for you like say John Kuhn who can who can uh put this out in uh, in gory detail but there had been assassinations uh you know going back into uh uh into you know the decades before the war uh the the militarists were firmly in control i guess to answer your question here the militarists were in very firm control of the japanese uh you know government and military there's there's no way around that they looked at Okinawa as a victory because from their standpoint, uh, ju- just a couple Japanese divisions supported by uh, local levies had managed to hold off uh, a huge American force for a very, very extended period of time. In Japan, Okinawa was thought of as a victory. So you have, uh, you, so again, this, this is, this is, uh, this is an area where there's been a lot of, uh, quite a few, as you note, misconceptions, because it was, it was thought, uh, every, every, uh, instance in the, U, uh, from the U.S. where he said, oh, well, this is our great victory, you know, certainly they must be, um, you know, on the ropes now. Well, that was true that we were thinking that at the time. Uh, but, you know, when you uh, looked at the uh, – or certain people in our hierarchy were thinking that. But when you ended up uh, – when they ended up seeing the uh, the magic decrypts and so forth, it was obvious that uh, – it became very obvious very quickly that the Japanese were not thinking the way we were and that they were in fact dumping more and more forces into the invasion areas that they had correctly deduced. Uh, at one point, uh, General Marshall's, um, you know, Intel Chief uh, General Willoughby uh, made a pretty alarming uh, report, and he was and he was looking at this stuff in Manila at the same time that we were looking at it in uh, Washington, and he said that like the the rate of reinforcement in the exact invasion areas is uh is coming to the uh is reaching the level of one to one which is not a recipe for victory so it's uh it was getting it was getting to be a tough situation because there weren't there were no there were no good alternatives um so so dennis what in the minds of those in control in Tokyo at that time, as you get into spring and early summer 1945, and as you said, they perceived Okinawa as a victory for them, uh, they're obviously not going to 
uh, ever achieve their pre-war aims, you know, their 1941, 40, oh, yeah, 41 yeah. aims. They changed but, their aims. Right. They, so they changed their goals and their outcome. Uh, so what's their strategy at that point? What what feels, well, actually, what, did they, what did they, they think did have, is a victory? They did have... They did have term. They did have terms for it. The basic strategy, uh, and I'm not. And I would. I would absolutely slaughter the Japanese words if I tried to say them. But they were. But it was bloodletting and delay. The the objective, quite simply, was to uh, kill as many Americans as possible, as fast as possible. Uh, make it as painful as possible, uh, you know, inflict as much pain on uh, the Americans as could, as could, as they could do, and they believed that they could do it because their armies, uh, a lot of people don't really, again, fully realize this, but were completely intact on the home islands and were being reinforced. Um, so their idea, their, their objective is to force an armistice and forcing an armistice where they would retain r- really all, all of their uh, all of their core empire so prevent prevent the united states and allies from invading the home islands maintain political control maintain military control no actually they wanted an invasion because that was the, the getting an invasion of the united by the united states was seen as a key to victory because it was only once the United States invaded that they could inflict massive amounts of casualties. It, but no, they desired an invasion, but but obviously not a successful one. An invasion that fails. An inva- <laughs> yeah, yeah an, an invasion that a, fails. Not a, a successful. An one. invasion that is bloody for the Americans and leads to, as you said, an armistice and a negotiated, you know, peace treaty or something. But but keeps. Well, they were willing, and they were willing to. Uh, they were willing to accept. Uh, Casualties uh, again. I don't want to overuse this word, but are just uh, astounding by uh, Western standards. Now, in in D.C., th- we were coming up with estimates of of uh, something like five to ten thousand Japanese casualties during the invasion. Those those were those were working figures that we were coming up with, and uh, military government, uh, you know. Um, Military government uh, elements and so forth were having to, you know, plan for literally uh, taking care of hundreds of thousands of Japanese inter- uh, civilians, uh, and event- and and very shortly thereafter, millions of Japanese uh, c- civilians behind our lines while the fighting was going on. Uh, we're looking at. Um, you know, uh, casualty estimates for Kyushu, casualty estimates for the for the Kanto Plain uh, around Tokyo, but uh, we we ended up coming up with with five to ten million. And I I don't want I want to use the word precisely here. I think I might have said casualties earlier. We were looking at five to ten million Japanese dead. That's that. That's the actual, you know, uh, d- died of uh, from bombardment, disease, malnutrition. We're looking at five to ten million dead. But here's the thing: while we in in the this side of the Pacific are looking at five to ten million Japanese dead in Tokyo, the figure that is uh, that commonly comes up 
uh, in uh, imperial circles, and then uh, you, it, we uh, get it from the Tokyo war crimes trials and uh, the uh, general officer interrogations after the war. We're looking at five to ten million Japanese dead. They're looking at up to twenty million of their countrymen being dead. I mean, again, how do, how do you even try? How do you even try and understand numbers like that? And they quite uh, so that they're will they're willing. I, in modern times, probably the the closest thing to the Japanese militarists at, at that point would be say ISIS today. That's 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 uh, that's how I might uh, describe might describe it. But again, it's not something that most people ever deal with or even think about, uh, even historians. But mass death, it's, it's really incredible. So, Dennis, we know that the war ended in August uh, 1945. Uh, it ended after those two atomic bomb drops uh, by the United States on uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, and the that, Soviet invasion of Manchuria. Great Very po- important. Great point. Uh, so the war came about, I mean, the end of the war came about rather quickly there at the end of the summer of 1945. How did uh, the uh, the advent of the atomic bomb, uh, a- a- as that technology matured and that weapon was tested, uh, and then suddenly became an option for President Truman. How did the calculus change from a strategy of invasion to let's you know try this nuclear uh, option? Uh, and there was some. Your book brings out that there was some interesting thinking about the, the number of weapons that might be required and whether to use them as uh, strategic weapons as they were used, or to use them as tactical weapons uh, to. Uh, facilitate landings in in uh, in Kyushu. Uh, so talk well, a little yeah, bit about that the, calculus. Well, yes the the thing was is that nobody knew if the atomic bombs uh, would actually uh, would actually work as far as uh, uh, precipitating a surrender. Uh, there was there was a target set. Of, uh, of four at different times, it went, it went up to five, and, and Stimson kept taking uh, Kyoto off. He had very good reasons to do that, uh, but there was there was basically a target set of four cities, and uh, the the way it was uh, the the essence of the thought was is if they don't if if this doesn't work after we've obliterated you know the the a some some certain number of cities we ought to start hoarding our production of, of uh so to speak and be and be holding it back for the invasion itself and Marshall uh, later outlined the, the the general thinking that there would be essentially, um, and of course this would be refined as the war went along, but at least up through August of 1945, the thinking was generally that we would have uh, three atomic bombs per invasion uh, area, um, and we had uh, we had three major landing areas, so there would be a, a use of approximately nine bombs the i you're talking about a, a really a fairly compact area what something like uh oh uh boston to uh you know uh boston out to western massachusetts you know and uh 
uh, out to Connecticut. I mean, it's it's a really it's really a fairly it's really a fairly compressed area when you're talking about these three landing beaches. So you know, you you uh, I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to be, um, you know, cute here, but like really, you, during the invasion itself, you'd be, you'd see three mushroom clouds all within visual range. Uh, they were talking, but they were talking about one on each of the invasion beaches itself, one in the immediate support areas, and then. Uh, and then as as things uh you know developed and troops were moving uh forward uh you know just uh, w- one to hit any any uh target of opportunity where they had a large enough troop concentration to make it worthwhile but basically three in each invasion area now at this time while they knew that radioactivity was obviously dangerous and would and would kill you uh a more complete understanding of radioactivity did not was uh, yeah it was not really a more complete understanding did not exist on like uh the residual nature of it and so forth and uh yeah that was that was going to be one uh, that whole area of the southern half of Kyushu and then because of the winds out into the Philippine Sea uh, was going to be a fantastically hot area for all the Japanese and Americans in it. Um, yeah, all I can say is it's it's a it's a danged good thing that the war ended when it did. Yeah, that, that's a, a staggering it's to a, think about. You know, that many nuclear weapons in that small of an area, uh, and, and as you said, there wasn't a full understanding of the radiation effects on health uh, long term. Uh, but there was an understanding of what a bullet would do, or a grenade, or a mortar would do to Americans coming ashore. And the thought was, and as you put this in in your book, the, the thought was, well, you know, better uh, to use the nuclear weapons. To to soften up the area uh, and allow the invasion rather than, uh, you know, just plow on shore as we had at Okinawa and Iwo Jima, right? Yeah. I mean, they went with, uh, they went with what they knew because, because they knew that the fighting as it, as it, as it was, was, you know, really just, I tell you, the fighting is, it was such, that you're talking about everything is like really within the range that you can throw a grenade. I mean, it is, it is, it is close. It is bloody. It is all around you. It is continuous. Uh, you know, well, you know, the, uh, commander third Marine division who was looking at going in, uh, over on the, uh, that landing beach that was, uh, out in the West, like uh well, you know what he said was that victory was never in doubt the cost was what was in doubt in all our minds was whether there would be any of us left to dedicate our cemetery at the end or whether the last marine would die knocking out the last japanese gun and gunner you know and that's that's general Ers- erskine well, I, I can't think of a better way to, to uh, wrap up this conversation. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but that is an sure. incre- that's an incredibly powerful quote. Uh, you know that victory was not in doubt, but what it was going to cost was that was the question. That was the ultimate question. And your book just uh, brings that out in in incredible 
gory details. Uh, for those uh, of our listeners who ever have been involved in in war planning, in strike planning, in uh, amphibious planning, uh, the the numbers and the casualty estimates, the uh, some of the the tables in here that include the medical planning that went into this, and as you pointed out, just for the invasion of Southern Kyushu, uh, which was the start of Operation Downfall to to retake or to take the uh, Japanese. Japanese uh, home island. So the book is called Hell to Pay. The author is D.M. Jean Greco. Uh, Operation Downfall, the Invasion of Japan, 1945 to 1947. Uh, Dennis, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. It's been great talking to you. Well, it's great to be here. Okay. Well, that wraps up another episode of the, the uh, Naval Institute podcast. I wanted to point out one thing uh, before I signed off, which is I uh, just asked our listeners who are not members to become a member. Membership in the Naval Institute doesn't just equal Proceedings Magazine. It supports all the programs of the Naval Institute from our conferences, USNI News Reporting, to Proceedings, the Naval History Magazine, our oral histories, and our photo archives. Become a member of the Naval Institute, and remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll catch you next week. The Naval Institute podcast is brought to you by Lockheed Martin. At Lockheed Martin, our mission is to keep you mission ready. And the F-35 Lightning II delivers. From the factory line to the front lines, we're there to see your mission through from start to finish, ensuring our men and women in uniform have a decisive advantage and come home safe every time. It's your mission that defines our purpose because lives depend on it. Lockheed Martin, your mission is ours. Lockheed Martin.